0: Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code Genius to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Debut novel, The Survivalist from Kashana Kali, starts out as a rom-com that suddenly turns into a love story made for Dateline. We look to see what happens when a young New York lawyer meets a coffee lover who has an overzealous obsession with preparing for disasters and mastering the right cup of joe. Kashana joins us on the podcast to discuss her novel's inspiration, her own experience of watching a friend get sucked into the life of becoming a survivalist, and her decision to switch from a career as an attorney to venture into the world of comedy writing for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and the animated series The Great North. So grab your emergency go bag, a box of your favorite protein bars, and settle in for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of the vulgar geniuses podcast we are your hosts my name is Danny, and i am veronica and today we are joined by our our book of the month for february author kashana Kali. kashana is the author of the novel the survivalist which was published in january 2023 by soft skull press she's also a tv writer who has written for the great north the daily show with trevor noah and a former contributing opinion writer for the new york times she has also written for the atlantic Esquire, The New Yorker, Pitchfork, and Rolling Stone, among other publications. We are so grateful to have you on the show uh, this evening. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? We are doing great. Um, Your book, we could not put it down. It was a delicious meal. It's been a very long time. We've we've read a lot of books, but nothing like this in quite a while where we're just like, it's read straight through it was like the best thing um for us to to start black history month out with our our the, the brand new year this is the new year for us and so we just want to say thank you for coming on our show so what we like to do is um we like to loosen up the bones before we get into the meat of the conversation so i'm gonna pass it off to denny
1: yeah i've never seen veronica read a book so fast so you know <laughs> she has never been she proclaims like a a slow reader and she i think finished this in a day and she was like i'm done i'm done (laughs) (laughs) so you know but the most important thing since we're talking about the survivalists um what's what is it what's it um what are the things that would make it into your go bag oh man
2: I I have a go bag. It's because I I moved to California right before the pandemic and they were like, there are earthquakes here. You need an earthquake bag. And that is an earthquake. Well, it could be a go bag if you have to go, but apparently it's a stay bag if staying makes more sense. And so I already do have a radio that I've never turned on, batteries that I'm not sure if they work. Um, There's like a first aid kit. I hope nobody gets injured. I'm bad at that too. (laughs) Um, There's like... (laughs) If I was doing better at this, I would put food and like water in there or something to like disinfect or clean water because you got to have clean water. Um, Yeah, just and anything else? I I would like just matches. I know people pretend they can start a fire from sticks, but like I'm actually from Wisconsin. Like I tried that. You can't do it. lies
1: (laughs) lies <laughs> no that and that's very true because my husband is into camping and then there's this one time we are all very hungry and there's this meat staring at us needing to be cooked and he's like, psh, psh. Oh, like oh. <laughs> 10 hours later me and my sisters get hangry so i wasn't impressed Big <laughs> time bring a match yes pat pack the matches in the go or bag. a grill
0: yeah, mm-hmm. that, that works.
1: Yeah. Nobody
2: got time to do this. <laughs> just get one of those girls with wheels, and that way you can roll your whole go bag down the street. Yeah, there you that go. was
1: my Christmas gift that same year. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so um what coughing tasting notes are your favorite?
2: I'm a dark heavy flavors kind of girl. I like, like chocolate and butterscotch, and like sometimes they say coffee tastes like red wine. It doesn't, but that just means it's heavy enough for my tastes. um and then like caramel and like in general if you go that that sounds heavy that's my jam really dark grapes like the super dark fruits
0: yeah yes same do you remember when you had your first cup of coffee when you're like ah life
2: no, because I, I know roughly when I had that first cup, it was in college. and It was terrible. This was like before coffee was good. And so it was just that thing that you took to stay awake because you were up till 4 a.m. like doing things you sh- maybe were not like commensurate with going to class. And you were trying to pretend that like 16 to 24 ounces of coffee was going to get you through that. But like, I remember my first good cup of coffee. It oh. tasted like blueberries and I could actually tell that. And I was like blown away. Do you put stuff in it? Like you add
0: sugar or milk or you just keep it all natural?
2: Yeah, black. Because that way you can
1: taste the notes. Uh, Yeah. Yes. Yep. I I used to call the college coffee sewer water (laughs) because it tasted like sewer water. And then my husband is obsessed with coffee, coffee beans, the grinds. We went to Mexico. We walked like 10, no, maybe 10 blocks to find this roaster. OG. Oh, like... (laughs) that's why i'm like am i reading stuff about my husband over here anyway
2: (laughs) we Um, did that me and my boyfriend who was now my husband and his friend we went driving around like the backwoods north carolina to find a roaster and we finally got there and we're like well yeah we'd love to try stuff and they're just like we're not like a cafe like we're not open to the public are you guys like coffee professionals
1: (laughs) (laughs) i would have i would have answered yes have you heard of this? This we classic? write a blog, we do all of the things. You yeah. haven't heard of us? <laughs> <laughs> I would have roleplayed quickly. Um, do you think there is a proper bunker location?
2: Mm. Um Maybe, but if so, it is definitely not Brooklyn, where it rains too much, and your bunker is going to spring a leak someday if it's not airtight. And also, you get, like, hurricanes and storm surge. I lived there during Sandy. It's not Brooklyn. It would have to be someplace, like, dry. Like, I get the desert, so at least, you know, you'd have a chance of keeping it dry. But the thing about the desert, you know, we have bugs and crap out here. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't want to meet a scorpion on, like, my morning walk either. So... I guess I'm, I'm tentatively going to have to say desert or at least not Brooklyn um, or at least not someplace with tons and tons of heavy rainfall. But, you know, it probably depends on your bunker building skills and like what you want out of like living your life underground. That would suck, especially if it rains and your bunker
0: starts rising to the top. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Start floating everywhere.
1: <laughs> we're, we're, we're in Florida. So I guess, again, not here. Definitely not it's... Miami. Oof, no, no, no. Miami. Oh, no. No, not even in Central Florida. No. Nope. So if you have to put faces in your characters, who would be this people? You know, famous, famous faces in your characters. Who would this be?
2: Well, I think Lakeith Stanfield would make the world's most perfect, Erin. Yeah, I have debated Aretha a lot. People don't know Sashir Zamata as much, but I really love her stand-up. And I think she has like yes. the right attitude. She has this great bit on like periods, actually, and how if men were like suffering the amount of pain that would be yes. a heart attack. Like yes. they would <laughs> periods, like like immediately. Yeah, she has the right vibe um, for an Aretha. I also like like Tessa Thompson has like the right kind of defiant. Like you know, I'm I'm here with you, but I I have like notes. Attitude that I like for like an Aretha. I think Amanda Seals would make a nice Britney. I feel like she's got that tracksuit. Oh, like, yes. You know,
0: vibe. I could see her I, pulling that energy. Oh, yeah, for sure.
2: Hmm. And I think, um, honestly, well, the best Aaron I could come up with would be Garrett Hundland because, well, Aaron, Aaron is not Aaron. Um, James. Uh, Jane James is kind of drunk and Garrett Hedlund is also kind of drunk, actually. And he's <laughs> a lot cuter than the actual James, but you know, yes, well. true. <laughs> yeah,
1: because we were debating on this earlier, and every time like, Veronica would mention it, James, like, no, they're too good looking. <laughs> sorry, white people.
2: <laughs> Not sorry. <laughs> Chan Tatum would want to like gain some weight. I think yeah. he
1: can do it. Yeah. Oh, like Fat Thor.
0: Oh, yeah. Chris <laughs> Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. He would have to figure out like a Georgian accent. Mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh happy uh book publication. It's been uh, almost a month. Tomorrow will be a month since your book has come out. Um what has it been like for you since this book has been out in the out in the world?
2: Nuts. I mean, I didn't think this many people would care. I have been like on the phone, on the radio, like talking to folks like, like most days since it came out. It has been just a pleasure to see people connecting with the book, asking good questions, wanting to mix it up. I honestly was just like, who's going to care about a bunch of weird people who built a bunker in Brooklyn? I mean, like I do, but yeah. (laughs)
1: like we say over here the messier the better Yes. thank you
2: yeah yeah that was my goal I was like let's bring the mess yeah Yeah, you brought
1: it you brought it no perfect people what's the fun in that (laughs) 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 so for those living under a rock um can you please um you know just make a quick synopsis of your of your novel
2: a very straight laced um follow the rules lawyer who is very single she's black meets the perfect guy he's black he's he runs a coffee company and he has his own brownstone in brooklyn and so she's like wow he's loaded and there's only one catch he's a survivalist and so are his roommates and she's like you know i this this isn't gonna get me down and well you know things happen
1: yes yes a lot of things happen a lot of things happen So this is such a crazy premise for, like, a story. What was your origin story for the survivalists?
2: My parents, I don't know that they would call themselves survivalists, but they did have an enormous stash of food that I was not going to eat if there was an emergency. Like, we're talking, like, canned ravioli and canned chili and stuff. And I was like, guys, like, this is not Apocalypse. (laughs) <laughs> and they also have like a gun stash, but it's Wisconsin. People have guns. And they always claim they were gonna hunt, even though they don't, but that's actually pretty Wisconsin too. They but they were just like we're prepared just in case, you know, like just in case in their minds could be anything from weather, you know, the ice storms, the tornadoes or whatever. To like, well, you can't call the cops, you know. We're black, we can't call the cops. I'm like, yeah, we can't call the cops, but like I don't, you know, I don't see myself as John Wick. Like I don't think I'm, you know, I'm <laughs> not I John don't Wake. think you are either. I think you're just middle-aged parents and and life here is kind of boring. And that's cool. And I think deciding that maybe doomsday is like a thing is less boring. Hmm. But there are also Two sets of New York City doomsday preppers that really got to me. One was a like, I'm sure they thought of themselves as like a Bonnie and Clyde type stockpiling guns and like this rich neighborhood in Manhattan with like no crime, nothing to be worried about. The most terrifying (laughs) thing in their neighborhood, the prices they charge you for food. Mm. And then at the end of my block in Brooklyn, there was a guy on top of like a very trendy ramen shop who also stockpiled an absolute ton of guns. And I was like, "Oh, I'm sorry. We we were neighbors." <laughs> <laughs> How did you find out that they had a stockpile? They covered this in the news. In retrospect, like because at the time, I know they've changed the gun law since, but just possessing a gun in New York was illegal enough. Because. Chances are you didn't go through like the 80 million point process. You had forms, you had an interview. You you really had to state a purpose as to why you want to own a gun. It had some of the strictest gun laws in the country. The Supreme court has tossed those, but just, and so I think because of that, the idea that people would have that many guns was inherently newsworthy in a way that it is not in a lot of other places in the U S. And,
0: you know, I was telling Denny, I shared a story with her. that She didn't know about, I thought I had told her, but, uh, Like 13 years ago, when I was on OkCupid, they did this thing where they would refer like, oh, this would be a good suggestion for you to meet this person. And it was this guy and it went to his, I copied and pasted because I was like, I got to keep this because no one will believe me. And it's his summary, his self summary about how he has been surviving for a few days out in this bunker. And he's like, you know, it's been crazy. Like the zombies are out. And You know, if you want, you are more than welcome. I have up to like space for 12 people here. You know, you can come just contact me and let me know. And he will update like a journal. I would keep going back because I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I want to that was like in July. And then September, it was in the news. They found his bunker. He was involved in like a chop shop thing and he had stolen like a food truck and he had a bunker and they unearthed it so when I was reading this book I was like oh memories I could have
1: dated that guy he was cute too that was a thing I was like she could have been you've been Aretha girl (laughs) so your your book brought back a lot of memories for me so don't trust okay Cupid don't don't trust it don't trust it
0: So, uh, which then it also reminded me of the 1999 classic uh, Blast from the Past, uh, starring Brendan Fraser, Alicia Silverstone, and Christopher Walken. Um, And it followed the patriarch of a family who was so paranoid during the Cold War that he decided that he was going to build this bunker. And something happened. He misunderstands it. And he thinks it's the start of nuclear war. So they go in this bunker and they stayed for like 30 years had a child down there it's really one of my favorite movies i always go back to it and so you know that movie as well as like tv shows like the the like survivor or the walking dead came to mind when reading your novel was there ever or were there any artistic cultural points that you pulled from it within your research to write this book
1: well,
2: culturally, I just read everything about the bunnies that I could get my hand on. I was just obsessed with them. I was like, guys, you and your friends, you have a lot of guns and you're on federal land and it's been going on for weeks and you're not dead yet. This is amazing. I had showed up in the middle of Lake Oregon or whatever with me, my buddies all armed to the teeth. I don't think I would have lasted like 10 minutes. Mm-mm, mm-mm.
0: I would have been gone in the first minute. I was like, peace out. Let's go. Was there was there uh anything else or was that your main focus on where you were where you were pulling from for this book?
2: The only other influence I probably had um I did do a little research. I saw people talking about their lifestyles on YouTube. But my freshman year college roommate was dating this guy like we absolutely loved her boyfriend before that they were together for like 15 years. And then she just had a moment and she dumped him and she got with a guy who, as he put it, had a preparedness hobby and took what he called a military transport vehicle and to move in with her in Baltimore. And we, like me and my friends were like, I'm sorry, do you not like like the people of Baltimore? (laughs) (laughs) Why bring a tank to go live someplace? She's like, they were, we didn't end up going to visit their house because I was kind of scared of this afterwards because she was like, okay, you know how the old guy, he like filled the attic with books. Well, like the new guy, he's just going to fill the attic with guns. You know, that's just how we live now. And like, oh, I had this chat with like my husband afterwards. We had been friends with her for like 15 years, but you know, sometimes friendships end like right around the time that your friend is like, I am really armed now. Whoa. Are they still, do you know if they're still... I have no idea. I really kind of ducked out uh, of that situation the minute I found out how much he was packing. Oh, be like, I'm oh, out.
1: Man. Nice knowing you, Jesus. <laughs> see, see, you on the flip
0: side, man, you must be a romantic at heart. Maybe that's what mm-hmm. pulled her in. I
1: don't know about that.
0: <laughs> so. You stated in a in a previous uh, interview um, with Mateo Escarpot that uh, you had been on this writing journey for like ten years. Was this the book that you had been trying to put together during that course of time, or what, did this come later for you?
2: What's funny is I spent this was always my dream product, but I I spent like eight years working on another book. It was about um, a bunch of musicians and like the history of like black people in rock music and how they were trying to like carry on that tradition, even though they were like playing these gigs and everybody was just like, why are you black? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) but music books are tough. It's hard, I think, to write a book about a band you can't hear. Mm. Like, so what do people connect with? Like, it's hard to describe the music in such a way that you can connect with it. I Always say there's The Last Revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton is a book that actually does a good job with, so you can't hear the music, how do you connect to these people? And I think it's because her characters are so good. I really loved Opal and Nev and the scene in the 70s and like protesting that guy with the Confederate flag. But yeah, I spent eight years trying to do that and not succeeding. And then I went, "Why don't I actually sit down and write my dream project?" And it came out in like six months. And I was like, wow. I should...
0: <laughs> you finished this book in six months.
2: Yeah the the first draft, which is substantially what is here. There are like I went through rounds of edits with my agent, rounds of edits with my editor. But the the structure, the characters, like the topics, the themes, and a lot of the arc is still there.
1: Oh wow.
0: Man, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I know we we have a lot of questions uh, about your book and we're trying to be as spoiler free as possible, uh, but we really love the characters. It's such a character driven uh, novel. So a lot of our questions will be focused on on that. We hope that you don't mind because I think we just fell in love with everybody that's in this in this book. It's
1: a love-hate relationship. Don't get it <laughs> twisted. OK, Like we love them. But also it's like why? <laughs> why? right? But human, humans. So you know, since we're talking about trying to survive, it can mean different things for different people. Aaron specifically said to Aretha that he's not really into the survivalist thing like his roommates. But as the story progresses, you know, we realize the readers that they are more alike than different. What made you explore this common trait for people of color that we are so good at, like, distracting ourselves from really facing our problems or realities and or our fears? It's like, oh, I'm not involved. This, you know, very avoidant.
2: I think. I think there's a lot there, like, in the answer to that question, I think. Some of our fears are hard to deal with. I hate generalizing across people of color. But I'll just speak from my experience. I I think some of my fears have been difficult to deal with because like sometimes people don't believe that bad stuff has happened to me i feel like sometimes and the other folks of color i've talked to just we are not necessarily believable by third parties all the time and so it's easy to put fears and concerns like that kind of off if you don't feel like people are going to believe you when you talk about them or if you think that what you've gone through is a little too deep and people won't want to talk about that either i have a lot of friends like that of of color i've gone through some of that stuff and it's just like well you know, do people want to hear about this traumatic event? Or are they going to decide that, like, you know, I've experienced too much trauma and, like, we shouldn't be friends? Because, like, they, mm-hmm. they think very heavy things when they look at me. I think the characters in the book go through some of that, you know? Like this Aaron and his, like, Hurricane Sandy experience. I, I know a lot of people with crazy Hurricane Sandy experiences. I ended up living in Chicago for a month because I couldn't go back. And my power plant blew up on YouTube. And the my apartment building flooded a bunch and my husband's work flooded a bunch. And it was just like, but I you don't want to hear the story of like a month in Chicago, do you? I mean, and on all things considered, we got lucky and we were someplace else at the time and like my my husband's job put us up and all that. But just also like, you know, like feet of water, like we our fridge, everything like rotted in our building. Our neighbors were just like, Yeah, people were going outside and trying to take pictures of the water and getting swept away. And talking about that stuff, I think, can be intense to other people.
0: Yeah, because I think it's like, you know, you have those that don't experience it and they don't know how they feel like I need to. Am I supposed to console this person? Like, I don't know if they want me to console them. And if they do, I don't know what to say. And then they get all like all weirded out. And you're just kind of like, oh, OK, you know, uh, we had a hurricane, a really bad hurricane last year and our house got like utterly destroyed and so you know like sometimes i would tell people and they'd be like oh i'm sorry and then it'll just move on to the next conversation or or just like ask some random question that has to do with the hurricane even though knowing everything that happened and still not like address it so i know exactly what you're talking about where you have some people who just don't know what to do with the information um but you know that's between them and their conscience or whatever
1: but it's the it's the, the the processing of it all so what was going through your head when you were writing Aretha when um she's getting sucked in into the survivalist mentality and knowing that the readers would be slowly seeing her imbibing this this culture
2: one of my favorite books is called The Believers by Zoe Heller one of it's a set of parents and their three kids and the dad is like this big like civil rights lawyer and the mom is a stay-at-home mom and they're both secular jewish people and their kids go off and have a lot of different lives but one of them kind of moves deeper and deeper into like being a hasidic jew and she she's like really uncomfortable with this at the beginning she comes from the secular background she doesn't know what these these traditions and these rituals are for she doesn't understand them she doesn't get them and she doesn't love them mm. but every time she goes and stays with the family or goes to religious service she gets sucked in like a little bit more each time i love that in just terms of so maybe you're you're in this experience and you're kind of intrigued by it But you're not sure what's happening. How do people get sucked in? How do people keep going back for more, even if it's not necessarily something that lines up with their values or something that's objectively a good idea? So I I thought about the believers and I thought, you know, well, how would you what could a a survivalist household offer somebody like Aretha that she would go and get sucked into a little bit more each time? And some of that, I think, speaks to her fundamental loneliness at the start of the book. She's got this great best friend, but a lot of her people have left New York or they've left her life and she feels lonely. And so there's, if this isn't a perfect situation, but she's got this household full of people. And yeah, the, the survivalism is insane. But she goes over there and I would argue as the book goes on, she's more and more included. These are her friends. Yeah, It's really hard to like not get sucked into something when you feel like you're making friends, having like, you know, a social circle.
1: Yeah, she even said it herself. I think she was like, Well, I like Nia, but Nia's only one person. I have three people now. <laughs> and I'm like, Girl, you're right.
0: I-, I told Denny, I was like, Tell me she isn't a Libra. Like, you gotta have a friend. Somebody gotta like you. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, This is my people. Like, I i get that. Like, you want the friend there. And, you know, like, I, I-, I was thinking about, like, what is it that kind of like it's, I guess there's this saying that I heard, like if you touch ink, it's going to smear all over you. It's like a rough translation. And how her exposure to these people, maybe once you're just like, oh, no, nah, I am not down for that. Moment. That constant like meeting and trying to have these conversations and trying to interject herself into these people's lives. was like, of course, you're going to take on all of these characteristics, But what is it that makes what they are doing become a part of your life. And I think it is like the loneliness that you talked about, but just for other people also, whatever traumatic thing that they might be going through. And they're just trying to find that, that end. Cause I was watching this Netflix documentary called explain. And they were talking about this one lady who was, what did they call it? I think they call her the target Karen or something like that, but she went into target and she was like knocking the mask down, telling them that they needed to take it out. And it was all because her business, time the pandemic hits, she said, I saw it cut in half, 50% of production cut in half. And so I was home and I just started, you know, like going online and seeing all this QAnon stuff. And she got sucked in more and more and more. And it's like the hurt that you're dealing with something else can open up a flood of other things. And we
1: definitely see this with, with those characters. Um, Brittany's character to me when I met her was she was fully developed. How did how did Brittany reveal herself to you?
2: Honestly, I started out with her clothes. I kept picturing those tracksuits. And then I was like, Well, what kind of woman would really wear these tracksuits? And what kind of woman would just be like, So I wear these tracksuits and I don't really deal with people and I'm really more into taxes? Like I started there and then I ended up building out her background and the coffee shop and how she would actually interact with Aaron when they met but yeah I just had this image of just somebody who's just kind of with a spicy personality wearing a tracksuit oh
0: man yeah (laughs) she was she was definitely a treat because she really doesn't have that much dialogue it's just like you know her silence the stares and the ignoring it just really feels like she's talking through the whole the whole book I love all of these characters
1: yeah, I, I can see her face. Yeah. Like, I can almost see her face. I know you said Tessa talking. I'm like, yes. Ready. <laughs> ready to relieve this experience. <laughs> Why was James' ne- uh, character ne- a necessity to Aretha's, like, character development? Like, for her to realize, like, oh, there's something different. Like, something is changing within me. Because I think it was really James that kind of, like, pushed her a little bit more to the edge.
2: I feel like within the the dy- dynamic of the house, Aaron and Brittany really have these defined roles. They know what they're doing. They feel kind of in control of their lives. They, they know what role they play in the coffee company and how they bring value. And James is kind of this like loose cannon, like third wheel type. And in a way, Aretha is too when she moves into the house. She doesn't really have a role with the coffee company. She she loves Aaron, but he has to go and like serves beans all the time. And so I think she ends up IDing with James a little bit more because they're the two people who don't have these firm defined roles in the house. And also because he's there. He makes herself he makes himself available to her. She she ends up hanging out with him. She ends up thinking it's it's more fun to hang out with him than she could have anticipated. Mm-hmm. He takes her through that journey because he's the one who sucks her most deeply into the culture of the house. And I think she ends up learning like what kind of person she is as a result of hanging out with him to good and bad effects. I think that's the role he plays.
0: Yeah. James is something something else. Um, so there's this this TikTok video that someone sent me not too long ago, where this girl she's singing this song and she's like, you know, um, asking questions about what's what is the motivation for dating someone? Like, is he really your boy boyfriend material, or did you just like the picture with him and the dog in it? And so when I think about like. Aaron, Aaron gives that vibe of like, you know, well, was he really boyfriend material or was it because his parents are dead? And it (laughs) feels like, is it safe to say that it feels like it's like a cautionary tale when when you're talking about Aaron, considering that he does have his his own trauma, but, you know, like the reason that was what attracted her in the beginning, other than him being handsome with the fact that his parents were dead.
2: Yeah, I feel like she just, possibly because of the loneliness, possibly because she really wanted to find a guy for so long, was just kind of uniquely susceptible to a guy who just really looked like a good idea, Mm. but was not.
0: (laughs) I'm like, been there, done that. So, you know, obviously, we 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 spoke about this at the top of the hour. Like, this book is very funny. So I was just curious as to when was the first time that you knew that you had the ability to make people laugh?
2: My kid was getting too old to put random stuff in his mouth. And I was freelancing and doing some, like, tenth sorts of work. But I had no idea what I was going to do. And I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to learn how to tell jokes. I started hanging out on Twitter. And, like, just trying to figure out, like, how did people, like, structure jokes? Like, what were setups and what were punchlines? This was, like, 2015. I think Twitter was much more of a place where people just sat around and told jokes all day. And I just liked that vibe and that feeling. Um, But I also, like, grew up with parents who, like, listened to stand-up in the car. I've always liked comedy. Like, people who say they're not like that, my parents were generally like, this is a Richard Pryor bit. This is a Sam (laughs) Kinison bit. (laughs) This is a Robin Williams bit. And so I I just sat there and I, I read about comedy structure and then I just tried stuff out. I felt like Twitter was this place where you could try stuff out and if it didn't work, you could delete it. And so and maybe nobody saw it. If you deleted it, it was kind <laughs> of a low risk, like potentially high reward. But if you screwed up, nobody like had to, you know, nobody had any proof or was going to hold that over your head. And so I thought it was a great environment to learn in actually. So I would just throw out like 10 jokes a day and see if anything stuck. And I realized, I guess, back in there 2015, 2016, probably around the time the Republicans were having a national convention in 2016. And I was just having a great time, like, riffing on what everybody was looking like when they showed <laughs> up there. That was probably it. I think, like, I had developed an audience by then, but I knew what I wanted to do, too, mm. humor-wise, and what kind of jokes I wanted to tell. So somewhere around there.
0: Do you remember the first joke where you're like, yes, like this? This it's did, right. I finally got it.
2: Yeah. I was driving around in Texas on vacation, like getting some barbecue and then trying to get my kid to sleep. And there was some sign about coyotes and how like, I don't know, I can't remember what the sign said, but it was definitely like, you know, we got to give coyotes a chance. And I took a picture of the sign and I put, let's trust coyotes over the top. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is it. <laughs> Twitter was also like, this is also it. <laughs> so for for
0: those that know don't don't know uh that you um were a, a lawyer before you you became an author. Um so I was just wondering, like, did you ever use any jokes in the courtroom? Like did, did it ever come where you needed to say something to loosen up, you know, mm. the people in the room, the jury or, or the judge of
2: the, you know, of the case that you were working on? No, I was a completely different person then. And also, it was just not an environment in which humor was a thing. If people would have died, it. No. <laughs> the judge would be like, nah. going
0: to have to shut this down. <laughs> so, I want to say thank you for writing a character like Nia. Uh, it's rare to see in literature where you have that friend that calls out each other's messes. And uh, was Nia created to be like, the Greek chorus on in the novel, the the person that says, "Hey girl, I see the red flags, like they're they're everywhere. You need to pay attention. Something's wrong."
1: Get out, get out. <laughs> she was screaming that from the get go.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, she was in part the Greek chorus, but also she and Aretha have so much history together. They're so tight. So much of that comes from Nia just wanting better for her friend, like having that come from like deep in her heart. Even though she she realizes that, like, you know, Aaron's got some upsides. I think at the beginning she's like, wait, he owns, like, a house. She's very much just like, but you're my friend. I want the best for you. I can't stand the idea that you're really in with these bunker people. <laughs>
1: Like, not
0: you too. Yeah, because you know, you'll have some people that be like, Go, on, girl, go get your man, go live in that house, drink all that coffee, sis. They they would encourage it. They definitely would. But Neil was like, They do what? <laughs> so you've you created uh, these characters who are all trying to avoid some major crisis. But what we see is their inability to deal with their personal uh, traumas and mistakes head on. When I was thinking about this, I realized that this could be also be like the overlay message in reference to America. And and 2020 brought a a lot of our fears, a lot of other people's fears, or magnified their fears. Uh, But now people have taken those fears, they either have let them go or they've blown them up to conspiracy times 10,000 to the 10,000 power level, rather than deal with the trauma brought on by racism and white supremacy and so on. Was this something that you wanted your readers to pull out from the book when they were reading? Or was this just like, you know, me just saying, okay, I can take something else from this book?
2: Oh no! I definitely wanted. Well, I don't like telling folks what they should take from a book because I'm pretty. I'm happy for everybody's interpretations of what happened there. I I definitely wanted folks to think about the role that fear plays in their lives. Is fear, you know, driving you towards something you don't want to do? Is fear like something that's controlling your life? I look at like the folks who, you know, the the screenshots from next door like and i just can't believe that people spent all day going i think there's a suspicious person in my neighborhood i'm gonna get so freaked out about this i'm gonna call the cops like three times and like we gotta put these people who are like walking down the street funny in jail like i'm just sort of amazed by that aspect of america i guess and i wanted Mm -hmm. to write it into the book because i'm obsessed with it
1: yeah like i definitely like feel you on that fear because you know in, we're in florida and i live in a neighborhood and then you know random random people would be like you know shout out to my neighbors um you know but <laughs> listening to this like you know they're like oh this this is happening this is happening i'm like yo i don't need to play by play like handle it like a normal human being like we don't need like these lenses to be mm. looking at everything because like you're just creating this like you know this fear that tension doesn't need- yeah
0: yeah So um, you are a writer on a very funny animated show called The Great North. What has this world of telling a story through comedy, uh, through an animated cartoon, uh, has taught you about writing?
2: I think um, I just left that show. But I think in general, like, I learned a lot about structure and a lot about... Had a family relationships in a way that worked that in this book i think believe it or not i sort of think of everybody living in the survivalist house as a family and a lot of what they're dealing is this family dynamics um in part and it was really fun to just write for a few seasons like a family like see their growth over time see how they got along and didn't see how their pressure points and conflicts came to the fore
0: what was the i you know i was just thinking of about this particular part when finding out that you were a lawyer and then your transition into doing comedy writing for your sketch shows and things like that what was that conversation like with your family and your friends and say hey you know like I like being a lawyer but I decided I'm going to take my hand at comedy did anyone was anyone like well girl you like funny with us but we don't know how that's going to transcend out there or were they like a hundred percent backing you in your decision?
2: I had actually kept that part of my life quiet. They weren't on Twitter and they weren't hanging out. And then all of a sudden I was working in comedy. And so it was more like everybody reached out to me and was like, wait, what just happened? (laughs) (laughs) We thought you were a lawyer. We thought, you know, you were you were just like writing like nonfiction and stuff. I had done some journalism type things before the Daily Show, and so yeah, it was just like, wow. I mean, how did this happen? They wanted a lot of backstory.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just I was like boom. Yeah, speaking of like the journalism stuff, I it clicked in my head because I've read your BuzzFeed BuzzFeed article, and I did not know that you're that person and this like and you wrote this book and i'm like what <laughs> in the living fuck <laughs> i'm like i don't know like you're like both brave and like in like i don't i don't know how you did it cuz i would be in that bathroom like throwing up with you just so you know cuz that that took a lot of courage cuz i i cannot do that
0: so this was this was an article in regards to her going to a, a gun show
2: is that right mm-hmm. Yeah. In 2015, I drove across the country to Indiana because I really wanted to cover this. I had a cousin who got into some gun related trouble and I just really wanted to understand, you know, why do people do this? How do people buy guns? How do these gun shows work? Like, how do you get inducted in this culture? And so I decided to go out and cover a gun show in Indiana. So I drove for two days and then I got out of the car and there are these two guys in the front and they, they're they like standing with their elbows on their rifles, like their rifles are walking sticks outside mm-hmm. the school where this was taking place. And oh, was that like a school? Said, yeah, I think it was out of school. It was just the weekend, and so they were using like the cafeteria to sell guns. And I was honestly like, I, I should know. I grew up in a gun household, but there's, but my my family isn't like. Let's take these outside. Let's demonstrate that we have them. It was just their own private, you know, protection and maybe hunting thing. And so the idea that people would stand out in like a parking school parking lot with like rifles. Like, threw me off. And then I did actually crawl in, see several thousand guns, go immediately to the bathroom, have a panic attack, take some deep breaths, (laughs) and go back out there, case the room three times and go, who is it in this room who is actually going to talk to me? I... It went like incognito. I wasn't like wearing a badge or whatever. If people asked me if I was a journalist, I said so. But the best thing about doing that in 2015 and in Indiana is nobody knew what BuzzFeed was. They had actually at this gun show had issues with journalists trying to come up and see what was happening. And, but those folks had tried to be more visible. They were like, oh, you know, I'm from some outlet they'd heard of. It really, ni- It's really nice to be undercover. Mm-hmm. And so I would tell them who I'd write for and it wouldn't click with them. So they would answer the questions. Although my third interview was this this woman who wanted to talk to me about how people just really just shotguns in their backyards like it wasn't like a hunting thing and anything like that it was just oh we shoot stuff we fool around it's just something to do on the weekends and her friend was standing there the entire time going why are we talking to her you can't talk to her you can't do this (laughs) shut up
0: I'm like nope I got all the dirt thank you when you pitched this idea what did your what did the editor say to you You Or like okay let's just go out and do it or they were like are you sure you want to do this story
2: I pitched it to two different places because I had it going with vice first and then my editor disappeared on me but um they were both in but well when it came to BuzzFeed it was an already written piece and so Mm -hmm. it was like do you just want to run this or not? But advice, it was like, do you want a photographer? And I was like, no, I want to go undercover and just take like really surreptitious pictures with my phone. Do you want like, backup? And I, no, I don't want to go in there with like a posse. I really want to be like as subtle as possible so that they don't, I don't draw a lot of attention to the fact that I'm a journalist at your gun show. And I think they thought that was all insane. But, you know, I went in there, I took a bunch of very subtle pictures with my phone that all got published. I asked them questions and they didn't, they, to this day, nobody has ever found me from there. I, I'm amazed. I I feel like, you know, and just said, why were you here? Why were you asking people questions? Because they were very anti that. Like I talked to enough people to know that they did not like journalists. They had a journalist sniffing around. And so I, I, I honestly still expect to get found out someday, but seven years and counting, you know?
0: Have you had any interesting interviews from people, not interviews, but reviews of your book where they thought it was one thing and then they realized like, oh, no, this is just a regular book or you haven't had that yet? I feel like if you haven't, it's coming.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The reviewer at the Wall Street Journal who reviewed my book was just like you know it really sets up for a thriller and i'm so glad it's not a thriller i'm so glad that it's just like you know hitting on things like high rent is something we're trying to survive and like trying to find you know housing generally and like affording cities as opposed to just you know a thriller about guns and bunkers And I was like, thank you. Like he was very much the, so I thought this was going to be something and it turned into something else. And I'm really, really happy it didn't become like a thriller. And I love him. (laughs) I want to tag that one on my wall. (laughs) So we have come
0: to the part of our conversation uh, where we like to ask every single guest, uh, we want to know what your top five favorite books are of all time. Or are there five books out in the world that you are really excited
2: about that you want people to know? Um, This is just going to be five books I, I am really excited about and love talking about. The first one would be, the first book that really, like, shook me was probably Song of Solomon. They assigned it in high school, and I was like, oh, my God, you can be Black, and you can be from the Midwest, and you cannot know who your family is because there are bad records. I come from one of those families where it's like, we've got some handwritten stuff in the back of the Bible, but we couldn't prove it. We're not really sure if these are these people's legal names. There are, like, no birth certificate, and I also grew up in Wisconsin where, like, it was always, like, so could you put together a family tree every three years? And so every three years I would just sort of sweat and feel kind of an- anxious because I can't go pa- past my grandparents. And Tony Morrison, honestly, was just like, you know what? That's fine. That's, like, part of the history of, like, us living in the United States, like African Americans descended from slavery. You're fine. It's okay that you can't trace back ten generations of your family. And I just really needed to hear that. I was mm-hmm. 17, and I was, like – I lived growing up in Madison, Wisconsin, which is not very black or non-white at all, and I was just dying. And that was the first book where I was just like, I feel at home here. This is my country, too. This is a perfectly acceptable cultural story for me to tell and to ID with. Maybe I could write, even. Maybe If you can write stories like this and get into print, maybe I could do this. I ended up dropping it for a lot of years after that, but Toni Morrison, I was just like, maybe, maybe it's possible. <laughs> maybe I make sense. Um... I think the other ones are probably just going to be recent wrecks. Uh, I was a huge fan of Razorblade Tears by S.A. Cosby. Mm. I think he's amazing. I always read through his interviews and people are like, I guess editors are like, people won't be interested in like rural black people in the South. And I was like, come on, man. I love the rural black people in the South. I love that He had a black guy and a white redneck try to avenge their married son's death. So I was like, now this is the kind of Southern rural story that's extremely real. People are gay in the South. People like cross-racially marry in the South. People, Mm -hmm. you know, get angry about certain things in the South, but they end up forming alliances that would seem unlikely to people who don't know more about the South. I have a lot of Southern family. And so I was just like, you know what? this is this is a modern South mm-hmm. and it's fresh and mm-hmm. it's entertainingly done. I want that one to be a movie and I think somebody did option it. So fingers crossed that it makes it through the process. Yes. But yeah, I wanted that South. I wanted a new, you know, modern South that told new Southern stories that were entertaining and fun. And I feel like Essie Cosby is just top-notch at that. Um, Post-Traumatic by Chantal Johnson. I feel like <laughs> she's so... Why? <laughs> <laughs> and it's about stuff you that is like not funny she's like funny about trauma and i absolutely love her for that some of the jokes she's telling her main characters telling with her best friend about just the horrible things that happen to those kids but that they they crack jokes about oh my god she's the best <laughs> i will read everything she writes forever i can't wait till she has something else mm. um i'm trying to think so that's three what else has been really good lately? The town of Babylon yes. by yes. Vila. I didn't know I'd be interested in a book about the suburbs. I'm from a city in Wisconsin. I've only lived in cities. I, Just for, like, suburbs or, you know, those places where big box stores are and whatever. And he's he just digs deep into the people and this town he's from and what brings you out to the suburbs. And also the choices that people made to keep themselves there and their families in good shape and how torn they felt. There was this section about, like, a black mom trying to decide, like, where to send her kid to school. Yeah. There were sections about... His parents, Latino parents, trying to figure out where to send their kids to school. It was it, like, these are real things. I've had these debates with myself. I know lots of people have. Some of the realest characters I've read in fiction in a long time. Just everyone yeah, felt yeah. alive.
0: Yeah, that definitely was one of our faves that we read last year. And, you know, it's like, oh, I, I've never really understood the not wanting to go back home. I, you know mentality until reading that book because I'm like I like I like my home like I understand why people don't want to go back but then I'm like I get the not wanting to go back to high school grad you know like the reunions and all of that stuff and seeing those people and just re- the way that he told that story was just so well done that definitely was one of our one of our top faves with a, with a
1: hint of humor also because mm-hmm. like if you don't laugh about hard things you're gonna go fucking crazy yeah. Mm -hmm. you're going to go crazy so you got to write it in a way that you can like also digest it or else you're going to be like the world can just burn i don't Mm -hmm. i don't care so what's your what was your 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 number five
2: my number five um trying to think of what i've been really obsessed with (laughs) i like the glass hotel by emily st john mandel Mm -hmm. i really liked um I know everybody likes Station 11 and I like Station 11, but I really just liked reading about all these people that were just completely traumatized by the financial crisis who did not trust each other or anyone else ever again and were just holding out in their own little like holes like not trusting people I also think that she did a really good job in the second half of the book exploring what happens to people who are dropping way beyond the middle class and like way even out of like poverty that's stable enough to be stuck in one place I just had not seen a lot of folks covered so I'm living in an RV so I'm moving from place to place seasonally for work and, and like literary fiction before for. Mm-hmm. And I was really honest that she had a nice, honest, long discussion of class in that book.
1: Yeah. I think not a lot of people like to divulge and, like, you know, like almost kind of list, like, also, like, how Alejandra would do it, like, close to like a didactic of, like, you know, how things came about. Why are we struggling today? Because there's this long history of what have happened. I think, you know, not a lot of people enjoy. That kind of like, you know, sometimes writing, because he was talking to us about, you know, how not a lot of people kind of appreciated that. They said sometimes, oh, it's long-winded or it's not unnecessary. But I found out through his book that I like it. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I like knowing why things are the way that they are. And it makes more sense to me in my head. So I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> book- Shana,
0: thank you so much for uh, joining us in conversation about you and and this wonderful novel that you have brought to the world that's a month old. And I, I hope that you continue to have more uh, conversations and interviews about this book and whatever else it is that you create in the in the days to come. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us.
2: Thanks so much for having me and for asking me such thoughtful and considered questions. Uh, thank you,
1: thank you. We hope to see this in in a screen somewhere. Your your book, can fingers we it, crossed. Can we make it happen? Yes, yes. <laughs> and if and if My it happens,
2: agree completely. Yeah.
1: And <laughs> and if it happens, we'll be
0: we'll be down to be like somebody they can sell guns to. If, if you need actress for that,
1: <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll cover the episode, you know, piece by piece, scene by scene. <laughs> all
0: right. Until we meet again, you take care. All right. Good night. We hope you enjoyed
1: our show. Our show has been produced and edited by Preston Long. Make sure to like, comment and subscribe to our podcast. Our theme song you've been nodding your head
0: to is by Sean Cantrowitz. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T.
1: Follow us on Instagram at The Vulgar Geniuses. Yeah.
0: Bye!
1: Bye.